This podcast is part of the Robots Radio Rocket Club, a program designed to help all podcasts reach their full potential. For information about joining the Robots Radio Rocket Club, check out robotsradio.net. Hello, and welcome to the Assassin's Creed Lorecast. My name is Austin, also known as Teacup. And my name is Shelby, also known as Sheacup. Join us as we embark on unraveling all of your favorite mysteries from the Assassin's Creed universe. From Assassins to Templars to the mysterious Isu and more, we will seek to uncover it all. So join us, and maybe even take a leap of faith. Hello and welcome to the Assassin's Creed Lorecast. My name is Shelby and you might also know me as SheCup and I am here with my other co-host Teacup. I'll let him introduce himself. So yeah, I am Teacup, also known as Austin and I'm excited to be here. Me too. I um, am pretty excited for our topic today. Kind of... um, obscure i'll say so why don't you tell us a little bit about who we're going to be talking about so you it's funny that you say it's obscure because if you have played assassin's creed odyssey and assassin's creed valhalla this person is not obscure to you and i almost said dragon age valhalla or in of dragon age odyssey so that you can see where my brain's at today um, but well, when I say obscure, I mean in like the the god side of it, um, because I know that this person is also a Nor has a Norse counterpart, and so I guess that's what I'm referring to when I say obscure. Yes. So today's topic is none other than Alethea, which we meet for the first time in Assassin's Creed Odyssey. So just so you know, as always. Big spoilers, spoilers for Assassin's Creed Odyssey, spoilers for Assassin's Creed Valhalla, spoilers, big spoilers, spoilers for hidden content in the game. So just a lot of stuff going on there. So Alethea is an Isu who existed around the time of the Isu Human War. She was the Dicastes, Dicastes. Yeah, that's how I'm going to say it. My Greek is a little rusty. Dicastes. Do you know any Greek? Your Greek is a little rusty. You don't know any Greek. I know roughly basic pronunciation. No, you don't. I mean, just a little bit. A little bit. I had to learn a little bit. No, I didn't take Greek in seminary, but I had to learn a little bit. Anyway, she was the Dicastes of Atlantis. Unlike her counterparts even though she was in later mythologies, she never sought to be deified by the humans. Instead, she became the embodiment of truth and was disgusted by her Isu counterparts who embraced their divine status among humans. Re Juno. A little background, Alethea in Greek mythology is the goddess of truth. Her Roman counter is uh, Veritas, which also just means truth in the link. Like think same roots as like verified and other words like that. Her Norse counterpart, Angrobata, uh, can be translated as harm bitter. The one who brings grief. The one who offers sorrow. 
Though some sources give her the title truth give her. So in all of these iterations that she is associated with, we see this theme of truth going in there. But even in like one who brings grief, one who brings sorrow, often like you can associate giving the truth in that. Like if you're bringing grief to someone, most likely you're telling them something they don't want to hear or a truth that they don't want to know. So we see a lot of this kind of truth role going in there. Do you have any overarching thoughts before we get into her involvement in history? Um, so yeah, what I'll say is I have read a book called The Witch's Heart. If you haven't read it, bear with me. If you have read it, please DM me. Um, but it is a retelling of Norse mythology from Angraboda's perspective. And this whole association with truth is really interesting because Angraboda in this book, in this retelling of Norse mythology, is kind of the person who's responsible for starting Ragnarok. Um, she's trying to protect her children, her children with Loki. And um, a lot of her story, she doesn't understand. She's been reborn multiple times. And so she's, her story in the book is really a story of uncovering truth, her truth, um, the truth of the universe that she doesn't remember. So that association is really interesting to me just right off the bat. Yeah, that is very, very interesting. Maybe I need to read this book. Fast forward to the her time as the uh, Dicastes. So this is a role that is appointed by a Poseidon in the city of Atlantis. And so it's basically like a judge or investigator for the city of Atlantis. They're responsible for overseeing the enforcement and balance of the Isu laws on the city. And like their laws in regards to how they interact with humans and everything like that. So in this time, she would discover what was to be known as the Olympus Project. And I think that we have talked briefly about the Olympus Project in past episodes, but I want to talk about it in full here. Uh, so this project is ba was basically designed by Juno and Aida to use Isu artifacts. Now, if you go back to our Apple episode, remember I talked about these artifacts that look like apples, but may or may not be apples of Eden. These are the artifacts that we're talking about uh, that can turn humans into beasts and that they would be able to be used as weapons in various conflict. Aletheia, disgusted by this, basically makes the recommendation that because of this, Atlantis needs to be sunk beneath into the sea. Do we know the reason why she's so disgusted with this? Um, yes. And that well, we'll talk about this in the beginning of the episode, but Aletheia is actually a very pro-human Isu. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't know if Angraboda is a very pro-human deity, but when we talk about later in the episode, we'll kind of talk about the various origins in Greek mythology that Aletheia has, which is very varied across the, there isn't a set origin. Like, you know, Zeus is always the eldest son of Kronos. It's not, it's not like that with Aletheia. And so, but yeah, there's a reason. She's a very pro-human 
uh, Isu and really believes that humanity should have more of an equal status. And so the fact that they're using humans and experimenting on them and turning them into these horrible creatures is what disgusts her about it. And as I said before, she is disgusted by any Isu that really embraces this kind of deity and lordship over humanity. So she hates Juno. Yes. Respect. Yeah. Same. Can I join the club? If you yeah, in there. So now we're gonna talk about the time in Asgard that Alethea has. So at some point there is an internal war between the Asgardian Isu, so that's like Odin, Freya, Loki, Thor, Baldur, Tyr, all these people. And the Jotun Isu, which are the ones that we associate most of the time with Greek mythology. So Jupiter, Juno, Minerva, Alethea, you know, all of these, Aida, all these people. So this implies that the Greek and Roman gods are from Jotunheim. Correct. So then that would then imply that Mount Olympus, the home of the gods, is in Jotunheim. Correct. So actually in this universe, Jotunheim, Asgard, were actually in the existence of Earth. They were places on the Earth, oh. not like separate what realms that exist somewhere else. That's really interesting. Right. Which is very, that's a big, big detour from Norse mythology. And um, Greek because, mythology. And Greek mythology. Because like Olympus is within the realm of the earth. But not but on the earth. But it's well above the earth. And it is kind of this mm -hmm. own like separate realm, but it's still on the constraints of time. Like, so like in a lot of other mythologies and religions, when you go to like your heavenly realm, it is outside the constraints of time. So it doesn't exist. Whereas as far as I know, Norse mythology and Greek mythology, their realms exist within like, the constraints of time. Yeah. And so it is during this war that Alethea falls in love with Loki and they sire three children together, Fenrir, uh, Jorgamunger, and Hel. So it is only really Fenrir that lives with Alethea until basically they decide, Loki and her decide to smuggle him into Asgard. Now, it is to be noted that after the war in a similar piece, the lines were drawn between the two groups. And so the Asgardians were not to go into Jotunheim and the Jotunheim people were not to come into Asgard. These lines were very, very strict. So Loki has been sneaking into Jotunheim to visit Fenrir and Alethea. I have a quick question. Yeah. So in actual Norse mythology, Fenrir is a wolf. Jormagrander, I don't know how to pronounce it. I'm just going to do my best, is like a snake. And Hel is like an actual girl. Um, but she has these kind of like ghostly features about her. So is that also the case in this universe? So we've, We've seen Hell or Hella, and she kind of looks like she does in Marvel MCU. 
Okay. We've obviously Fenrir is a wolf. We have not seen. I'm just gonna say uh, either like Jormungandr or that soft J that Jorgenmunder. Someone who knows a lot more than me can teach me how to say it. Please let us know. Yes, I've probably butchered it and given great insults to the Norse uh, culture, and I apologize. So. Loki, after he's been visiting Fenrir and Aletheia, decides that he wants to smuggle Fenrir into Asgard. Even though Odin has basically gone on his crazy boat and said, I don't want any wolves. Talked about that last episode. So they smuggle him into Asgard with the help of the Builder, and we talked about that. So before Loki leaves to do this, uh, the triad told Aletheia that they had begun work on the seventh method of salvation. So at this point, the Isu-Human War has gone into effect and the triad is already looking to build upon trying to find this method of salvation. And so she tells Loki this and Loki's basically uh, like, they're not going to succeed because they failed six times already. Like, this is stupid. So... Juno would eventually come to Aletheia to try and convince her to come over to her side and prevent the humans from inheriting the earth. Aletheia would decline, saying that she understood humans and that they would outlive their creators, which pisses Juno off. To no end, I'm sure. Right. So little to known to both of them, Odin overhears this conversation because he himself has snuck into Jotunheim to, because he's heard tale of this seventh method of salvation. So he's coming to Aletheia to basically find out about it. So in this conversation, Juno basically reveals to him everything that's going on. And then she departs. And then Aletheia is basically tricks Odin into coming under a truth device and Loki appears and they basically interrogate Odin on how to free Fenrir and Odin's intentions for the wolf. And so Odin tells them that he would intended to keep Fenrir imprisoned until after the solar flare and that he didn't really intend to harm them. So eventually, like, time passes and Odin does imprison Fenrir and it's a big whole deal. Like, you, if you know the myth, like, Odin basically has the dwarfs make him a cord that can't be broken and they trick Fenrir into allowing him to be bound. Uh, and Odin convinces Tyr to put his arm in Fenrir's mouth as a symbol of trust, which is how they deceive him. And they bind him that way. Well, this pisses both Loki and Aletheia off. Uh, Aletheia is actually mad at Loki and says that he should have been more careful in smuggling in Fenrir into Asgard. So at this time, Loki considers going public with Fenrir's imprisonment. But Aletheia warns him against it for fear of what would happen to their other children should Singen discover their affair. Which I don't know much about the Norse relationship between Loki's wife and Angerboda. Well, they don't really meet until 
Ragnarok's already begun and by that point they're so desperate that it's like well I mean they do meet before but um she doesn't discover it no she it's kind of complicated to explain I mean so but Loki is also going to go to the council and explain to them what Odin has done in stealing the seventh method of salvation but he decides against this after the triad decides to strip Juno of her titles for helping Odin and a lot of stuff going on because she basically helps Odin so that she can negotiate that Aida can be made immortal and reincarnated and the Isu are pissed about that. So after this, Loki kind of like decides that going with the actual Isu government is not the way he wants to go. And so he takes matters into his own own hands and poisons Baldur with mistletoe and blames it on the fire giants. Which Alethea, after finding out of this, again, is pissed and is like, you have brought down wrath upon us. Odin is going to seek vengeance for what you did, which he does. So after a while, Alethea tells Loki that the seventh method of salvation would require a human host to work. And Loki basically gets this idea among him and he decides to go steal the seventh method of salvation taking Alethea with him and as we know what we talked about last week the effort leaves Alethea injured and she has to be imprisoned and kept in the staff of Hermes so before we kind of go into her involvement in like Odyssey and all of that in the present day timeline let's take our break unless you have some thoughts before. Um, not yet. Let's get into the break. Makose! Shoot! Shoot the flying demon! Malaka! 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 Even now, faced as I am with the truth of your cold words, I refuse, because I believe things can still change. I may never succeed. The assassins may struggle another thousand years in vain, but we will not stop. So... First of all, first thing I have to say is um, the mid-break is where we thank all of our patrons. We don't have a ton of patrons because we did just launch our Patreon recently, but if you want to support, you can support us that way. Um, And we do have two patrons right now. We have MK10Gamer and Keith R, and we're super, super thankful to both of them for being our patrons. So you can join the patron and the Patreon, if you want to, that link is in the episode description. Um, but if you can't support us financially, the best way to support us is to leave us a review on Apple or on Spotify. We're currently trying to get to 50, I think, reviews on Apple. So if you haven't left us a review yet, definitely go in there and leave us some words. And if you leave us a five-star rating, Um, with good words about the show. We will read that out on the show. And then the other thing that I have to remind you about is about our Discord servers. We have two that we're in. The first one is our Discord server, the Cups podcasting server. That's the home of all of our podcasts. We have a ton of fun over there. It's a great place to be. Come, Come and join us. And then the second Discord we're in, we have a channel and this one Um, is the robots radio server this server is the home or this server is the home of the robots radio rocket club and we're a member of that so we do have a channel over there and there are are 
tons and tons of podcasts that have their home over in Robots Radio. So if you are bored on your drive to work in the mornings, hop into the Robots Radio server, find a new podcast. I promise you won't be disappointed. Other than that, Austin, I think we're ready to get back to it. I don't have any major updates on my playthrough today, so... And I know I was really nice to you, but actually I'm just another Templar plot twist. And yes, I would like very much for you to be controlled by a magic space wizard so that you can murder me. I am not a father anymore. I am not a husband. I am not a Magi. I am a hidden one. Yes. We are the hidden ones. All right, so we've kind of done Alethea's time in the era of the Isu. So now we're going to kind of go back to her time after that, because she does exist beyond, because she's tied, like Consus, she is tied to an Isu artifact. So eventually the staff passes through a lot of people. We don't really know. We know it comes to Pythagoras, and he lives a long time in Atlantis, basically, with his math. Just hanging out with math, I guess, whatever. And eventually, the staff falls to Cassandra Eaglebearer, who is Pythagoras' daughter. So when encountering this, she uses the staff and Alethea's help to relive Alethea's memories of Atlantis and her time around that time. In this Alethea also communicates with Layla, asking her to unlock the gates of Atlantis in the present day timeline. So she can relive Cassandra reliving Alethea's memories. In my notes, I wrote animusception, a memory within a memory. And so Alethea, they go through all these trials to like help unlock the staff and have everyone understand the power. However, Layla's been spending a lot of time in the bleeding of, or in the animus and the bleeding effect starts to take hold and Layla starts getting irritable and angry and part of this is because she decides to relive the memories of Demos who is the other sibling so in canon is Alexios but depending on who you play as can change relive his memories and he has a very bit, much more violent tendency than Cassandra does. And like a very broken, and he's been brainwashed by a proto to the uh, Templars, not the Order of Ancients, a different group. And those memories start to affect her and kind of break her. And she ends up killing one of her friends in a rage. And this causes Alethea to say that she regrets choosing Layla as something called the heir of memories. So Layla basically like pleads with Alethea to like, keep using her and that she needs to know and she needs to find out this information so that she can finally beat the Templars. And so after the last simulation and the last trial that they go through, which is called the Judgment of Atlantis, Otto Berg, who has been tracking them, shows up in Atlantis and he and Layla fight and Layla is forced to kill him. And so this is finally the end of Otto Berg. And finally, this homie has survived so much. Right. And so after this, Layla is like, her team is enraged at the death of Victoria, her friend, not Otto Berg. Right. No, I get it. Yeah. 
they're enraged by the death of Victoria and they don't really want anything to do her, do with her, even though Layla's like, it was the staff, it was this piece of Eden, it was the bleeding effect, like, I didn't mean to, I didn't really want to, I'm so sorry. Well, two assassins do have compassion on Layla. And those assassins are Rebecca Crane and Sean Hastings. Mm. So I was going to say before you said that, that I think that it's interesting when we compare Layla and Desmond, right? Mm -hmm. And I know I don't know all of Layla's story yet, but Desmond also suffered the bleeding effect, also had a piece of Eden and also was forced to kill a member of his team, right? With um, Lucy. So I think that the reaction is interesting. Um, I don't know if I have any coherent thoughts about why or any analysis of it but I think that it makes perfect sense that Sean and Rebecca would be the two that are like no we need to have compassion on her because they themselves have been in that very same situation and they themselves had compassion on Desmond in his rough time with this exact same not exact same but a very similar situation and so that makes me have a lot of respect for Sean and Rebecca and maybe not very much respect for the other uh, younger assassins. Um, but that's just me. I think it also just comes down to that Sean and Rebecca have so much more experience with the Isu and they know how manipulative and all-consuming that this can be. And like they know that one of the reasons that Desmond is able to endure so much is because he has Isu DNA. We don't know if Layla does or not. Mm, I thought we knew that she did. I don't remember ever. I'll have to go back when, because she's coming up sometime soon as a character deep dive. Yeah. Probably not this year, but in the next Mm -hmm. year, definitely. And so when we get into there, we'll talk more about her ancestry and all of that stuff. But she, I think they know, they just know that you can't take anything as a given when you're dealing with the pieces of Eden and the Isu. Right. Um, just because they've dealt with so much. But so they're basically trying to help Layla come to terms with herself. And in this time, another world crisis begins to happen. And that world crisis is something to do with the Earth's magnetic poles. Oh. And so we learn that through the game of Valhalla, we learn that Aletheia and Layla and Loki and Basim have sent Layla a message. He basically tells them to find the mad one and that leads them to Eivor's body buried in North America. And so through all of this stuff and all the events of AC Valhalla and Eivor's life, they eventually discover that what's causing this other catastrophe, this other crisis on the earth is the energy that was activated by Desmond in the Grand Temple. So the Grand Temple is still activated and it is causing a bunch of problems for the Earth. So Layla actually goes back into the Grand Temple, discovers the machine Yggdrasil, which we'll talk about coming soon. She gets trapped in there, inadvertently frees Basm from that machine, And in doing so, she's separated from the staff of Hermes. She dies from the radiation that Yggdrasil is producing. Basm picks up the staff and leaves. 
And so Basm and Aletheia are reunited. And it comes to be revealed that Aletheia actually manipulated Layla into coming and freeing Loki. That's really interesting for a lot of different reasons. Um, The science feels iffy on that one, I will just admit. But it's interesting to me because in, um, I guess, Angraboda and Loki are reunited, but not in like a love way. And so they come back and Basm, that's the end of AC Valhalla. And there's another ending to AC Valhalla, but we're not going to get into it because I'm going to save that. So that's really all her story that we know so far. Here's some behind the scenes kind of stuff. In AC Odyssey, when we go to the forge that's on the island of Andros, uh, there's a voice in this Isu forge that upgrades the Spear of Leonidas, and that is Aletheia's voice. Cassandra would later discover Aletheia's recordings of the Olympus Project when she finds Atlantis searching for her father. I think this is interesting. Some mythologies have Aletheia as the daughter of Saturn slash Kronos. Some have her as the daughter of Zeus or Jupiter, and some have her as a creation of Prometheus, which I think is very interesting because Prometheus is known to be a Greek god who very much favors humanity. And like he gives humanity fire, but he's also responsible for, you know, giving curiosity to humanity, which creates Pandora's box. But to suggest that from Prometheus comes this embodiment of truth, I think is interesting. Um, it is interesting, but it makes me ask though, is has Prometheus been represented as an Isu in the Assassin's Creed in the Assassin's Creed universe? Not anything more than a mention. So it's possible that we could see him in the next game. It's possible, but it's I mean, it's just a brief mention. Like Yeah. But the door is open. Yes. So Shelby's going to roll her eyes at me because we both do not like this philosopher, but he does make a point. So the philosopher Martin Heidegger theorizes that Aletheia and her Greek or her Roman counterpart, uh, Veritas, represented different forms of truth. And that because Aletheia has more meaning to unconcealment, as in something to be uncovered or revealed, whereas Veritas represents something in a sense of rightness or correctness. And so he argues that they're really different goddesses because they represent different aspects of the truth. Which I, mean, I just I guess was- I see that. When you studied when you studied Heidegger in, in college, were any of the games that mention Aletheia out yet? No. Okay. Well it's like, were you thinking about Assassin's Creed during philosophy class? No, I was not. I did skip a philosophy class to play Black Flag, though. So, in college, uh huh. Black Flag came out when we were in college. Yeah, like 2013. Oh man, Black Flag was one of the first games that got ported. Like it was released for the 360, and then a month later, the Xbox One came out. Hmm, that's right. So you wow. got you could pay like ten dollars and get it upgraded. Interesting. Yeah. So I've got some quotes that I think are interesting. I've been brought quotes before, but she talks so much is like recording and her just talking to us that I thought they would be significant. So when you first meet her, she says, call me Aletheia. I am truth and it's revelation and I am calling you out. I feel like you're in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then let's talk rebel to rebel. 
We've been held luck too long by the precursor rules. It's time for new paths with new possibilities. This is not an era of control, but of creation. You treat humans as useful apes. How many artifacts have you created to control their minds? Do you fear their potential that much? That was to Juno. Uh, my fellow precursors set endless challenges in your paths. Artifacts, creatures. Don't get me started on the Olympus project. Their meddling got out of hand. Got a very big anger streak there. And not a lot of respect for her fellow Isu. Mm-hmm. I think the thing that stands out to me most is the second quote, um, because she identifies herself as a rebel, which suggests, I mean, we all know that that Isu don't like humans, right? Um, but her, her statement that she is a rebel implies that it's not okay for any Isu to like humans. Like, so it implies that Juno is not just an extremist. It implies that Juno is the norm almost. Maybe Juno is is an extreme. Is she isn't she is extreme, but she's not that far from being the norm. Mm. So I think that's significant. But the other thing that I think is significant is the last line. It's when she says, This is not an era of control, but of creation. She's basically setting herself as the diametric opposite to Juno. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really interesting because there's really, there's three Isu that are in direct opposition of Juno. And that's Minerva, Aletheia, and Consus. Mm -hmm. And so Consus and Aletheia are both trapped in Isu artifacts. Not only that, both Consus and Aletheia have the Isu artifacts that are healing to humanity. Correct. I think that really, really proves your theory about the Isu having a, a subgroup of pro-human Isu. Yes. And so I just think that's interesting. And so, you know, because we experience Valhalla through Eivor and thus through Javi Odin, we view Loki as this kind of villain or antagonist. But Aletheia is really not, like, she's not anti-human, really. So I'm very curious what Basm Loki's goals are after this event of Valhalla. Because we, as I said last week, he wants to talk to William Miles. And so maybe that's something to do, but like he wants to end the Templars. Maybe Loki and Aletheia are really trying to fight for humanity's freedom and not their control. Right. I agree with that. And I I wonder if like Valhalla and its association with Odin is going to like, like they're going to take everything and turn it on its head in the next game where like, oh, you were actually working for the bad guy in the last game. And now we're working for the good guy with Loki. You know what I mean? Right. And there's this whole scene of in Valhalla that's kind of like very similar to Uhtred and Alfred in Last Kingdom with Eivor and Alfred. And there's like this mutual thing of respect between Eivor and Alfred. Maybe the reason that Eivor's not a hidden one is because we haven't been playing as someone who is sympathetic to the assassins or hidden ones. Right. Especially if, if, um, Eivor is a sage of Odin. Why would Eivor be sympathetic to the assassins? 
Right. And Eivor is probably one of the most selfish protagonists that we've played as. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I give a lot of crap to Valhalla, but I think after doing this research and after learning more about Alethea, Odin, Loki, all of this stuff, they've, they have a lot of potential with Mirage and where the games go forward to kind of find that footing in the present day story again and like mm -hmm. make it matter again which I think is yeah. something that the games have been missing. I agree with you. I also wonder though, if if Valhalla is going to be one of these games we look back on three games later and be like, oh, wow, they were really planning ahead. Like they were really planting the seeds of a story that's going to come to fruition in several games. It, it, I think a reason why people dislike it is because it feels so out of left field. It's so different from other Assassin's Creed games, but maybe that's because they're planting new seeds of stories that will then make sense later. Um, and that is an optimistic view. I will admit that is an optimistic view, but I do think that there is potential for that to be true. Right. And I think that where they're learning, I think there is a lot of learning that's happening with the RPG games that they learned from the last games because they spent five games with Desmond and his story ended and then they decided they were going to make more games and they really didn't have a direction to go with the modern day storyline because as far as they were concerned it was over I think they've learned about this which is why I think Valhalla ends as it does with Layla's fate because I think that they're they're learning from the mistake of let's not get too involved with this character so that we don't know what to do when we eventually have to go beyond her story. But do you think that means they're moving toward eliminating the modern day storyline at all? No, I don't think they're going to eliminate the modern day storyline. That's I think a big thing that people say though. Um, I, th I think it's a potential. I think that would be a big mistake. I agree. I agree. But I think it is a potential. Right. Um, and I think that, you know, one of the biggest critiques of Syndicate and Unity is that their modern day stories don't feel like they matter. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the modern day story was told via comics in that time. And so I think it's important that we have a big we have a modern day story that we care about because that's where the stakes are. Like if you don't have stakes in a, in the modern day story, there's no stakes in the game because it's just history. We know no, what I, happens. I completely agree with that. Um, like if you don't have the modern day story, you're just, you're just using the animus as a historical simulation. Um, <laughs> you're not using it to, to learn anything or to do anything. You're just looking to, to see so I agree with that. Um, but there's a big part of the community that thinks that um, Ubisoft is is leaning toward eliminating the modern day story. And I agree with you. I think that would be a mistake, but it's it's possible that opinion is out there. I think I also think a lot of that is based on that we don't ever get any kind of advertisement with the modern day story when they're advertising the games. But I will remind you that none of the Ezio Trilogy trailers talk about Desmond at all. Mm. No, that's fair. That's a fair point. Mm. Um. Well, do you have anything else? No, that's all I got.
Okay, well, let's wrap this thing up. Thank you so much for listening to the Assassin's Creed Lorecast. This was a blast. We'll do it again next week. Thanks for listening to the Assassin's Creed Lorecast. You can find us on Twitter at Assassin's Creed Lorecast, or you could talk to us on Discord in the Robots Radio Discord or our personal Discord server. Both links found in this episode's descriptions. Thank you for listening, and always stay to the shadows to serve the light, Assassins. Ever wanted to be a content creator but had no clue where to begin? Come join me as I sit down with content creators that have already faced the challenges you're up against as they discuss the tips and tricks that help them be successful here on The Content Creator's Guide, available wherever podcasts can be found.